Well, we are nearing the end of our summer sermon series, which is unfortunate because that means summer is coming to an end as well, but uh, also opportunities for, for new beginnings and new, uh, a new series coming up in the fall. Today we're going to have a look at a parable found in Matthew 25, uh, and we'll look at the passage in a moment here. But if you want to kind of get ahead of things and open your Bibles Matthew 25, and we'll start in verse 14 in a few moments, so you can feel free to do so. Um, and this is a parable that many of you might find familiar. It's one that Jesus told that's referred to as the parable of the talents. And it's the story of a landowner who uh, is going away for a while. And he's got some servants that he puts in charge of his business while he goes away. And, and he expects them to show a return with what they've done with his business interests when he comes back. Now, when we read stories like this, we might expect that in the end, different servants, different investments different responses will be what the end result is. But as we think anticipating what those responses are going to be, there's a bit of a human nature. There's something within us that wants to evaluate the servants and evaluate the master's response based upon how much they produced. And I think this comes from this part of our culture, especially in our, in our Western world. Our, our culture has this tendency to associate identity of, of maybe even of ourselves or our identity of other people with, with these labels we attach to what we produce. Have you ever experienced that? Think, for example, when you meet somebody, what is one of the first questions that you're going to ask a person when you first meet them? What do you think? What do you do, right? What do you do with your days? How do you spend your hours? What do you do for a living? These are the types of questions we commonly ask, and they're, they're kind of associated with these titles linked to what we produce. It's a common part of our culture. And when we are asked these questions, sometimes we describe ourselves in terms of what we produce and of our purposes, but we like to dress it up a little bit, make it a little bit, a little bit fancier and make it sound a little... You know, maybe a little more than it is at times. You know, for example, we recently hired uh, Andrew to join us on staff team. And Andrew and I were talking, we need to give you a, 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 an awesome title. Because we can't just be like, director of youth and young adults. Because you're dealing with youth and young adults. And so it's got to be edgy and it's got to be energetic. So we came up with director of next gen. Right? And we dropped the T to make it even, no, we didn't drop the T. But we, we were talking about dropping the T because then it's even edgier. Next year. So we kind of dress up a bit. But here, I'll give you some other examples. You might be more familiar with some of these ones. For example, if somebody says that they are a domestic engineer in charge of child development, <laughs> what are we? We're moms, and God bless all of our moms. Thank you for being in charge of child development and being a domestic engineer. You could add many, many more titles to that long list. Mom is too simple. Here's another one. If you are the chief athletic development consultant, that means you coach your kid's hockey team, right? It could also be referred to as herding cats. Yes, you coach them. I did that for many years where our boys were younger. When I was in other professions, I tried to talk up my job descriptions at times too. For example, there was a time in my life when I was a petroleum transfer engineer. Do you know what I did? I pumped gas as a petroleum transfer engineer. Yes, you would pull up to the pump and ding, ding, I'd come running out and I'd put 20 bucks in your tank. Right, there was also another time when I was in university that I was referred to as an aquatic therapy procurement advisor. Aquatic therapy procurement advisor. I sold hot tubs while I was in college, right? But nowadays, I simply go by the title pastor. 
plain old pastor. But that's because I have to. Only because hardcore, soul-saving, difference-making, devil-kicking ninja is not an official job title. So I go by pastor. Right? So. <laughs> I practiced it. That's why I could say it fast. That's right. <laughs> Good. But as we're going to see in today's parable, the master's response to his servants is not related to any sort of titles that they hold. Or it's not even related to any particular level of production that they're able to manage. Rather, the servant's response to his servants here is based upon their faithfulness to continue the work that he's given them to do. And here's what I want us to see today, is that God has given each and every single one of us unique talents, unique abilities, unique opportunities for us to put to use for his purposes. And, and, I, and I hope that we'll seek to remind ourselves to faithfully identify and use what those talents are, to, to identify them, to use them, and to honor God with them so that our talents, our abilities, and our opportunities that are placed in our hands can be fully achieved for his purposes. Now, let's have a look at the parable. This parable is part of a much longer teaching that Jesus has, referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And it takes place on the Temple Mount, where Jesus is there one day and his disciples come up to him, and his disciples are admiring the, the magnificence of the temple and, and, the, and the, the shocking beauty of, of the stones that are erected to make these incredible buildings on the Temple Mount. And as they're doing that, Jesus predicts that, you know, guys, one day there will not be one stone on top of another one, which is an absolutely shocking statement for them to make because this is a magnificent building. Some of these stones were 37 feet long and 14 feet tall, and he's saying not one will be left on top of another. Speaking of the destruction of the temple, that would happen about 30 years later. He also talks about difficult days that were ahead for those who considered themselves followers of Jesus. He talked about his future return as well, which, which was really interesting to them because prior to this, he had been talking and repeatedly telling them that he was going to be going away and that the time for his departure was nearing. But now he also shares the truth that he would come back again at a time that was only known by the Father. But while he was away, while he was away, there were things still to be done. There were still things to be cared for, to be developed, to grow, and that would become a big part of a disciple's life. And so to impress this upon them, he tells them a parable, a parable referred to as the parable of the talents, about this wealthy landowner who was leaving on a long journey. And before he departs on this journey, as you may expect, it's not uncommon then or now, when you have business ventures away from home, to leave some people at home to look after your organization, to continue to advance your, your ventures and your business at home while you leave. And so you need good people around you to maintain the organization, to advance your interests. This landowner has three servants in particular of varying different abilities, and he leaves them in charge while he goes away. And we read in verse 15 that to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, to another he gave one, each according to their ability. And then he left. Now the word talent we see here is in reference to a weight of precious metal. Some of you, if you have a, a newer version of the Bible, they've actually changed the, the heading of this section from the parable of the talents to the, the parable of the bags of gold, it may even say. Because quite often it's in reference to, these talents are in reference to a, a heavy weight of gold. 
thought to be around $250,000 per talent. Now, in that day, that was roughly enough to pay a common laborer for about 20 years. And so the first servant ends up being handed 100 years' wages. The second servant is handed 40 years' wages. And the third servant, with just one talent, is still given 20 years' worth of wages. Now notice that nowhere in the story, especially at this point in the distributing of the talents, nowhere in the story does anybody grumble. Nobody's complaining. Not even the third servant who received the least. He's not going, hey, that's not fair. I only got one. He got five. I got one. We don't see that going on. Now, we wouldn't be surprised if, if that was included because I think there's some human nature that comes through in that sometimes. I remember when I was younger, my sister and I would sit down to have dinner with my parents, and I was really, really attuned to who got what on their plate. And so after all the food was served, maybe you've had kids like this, or maybe you were one of these kids. After the food was all served out, I'd be like, hey, Shannon got more potatoes than me. Hey. Shannon got a bigger piece of meat than me. And what would my mom and dad say? Mark, keep your eyes on your own plate, right? You got enough on your plate. Keep your eyes on your own plate. See, the servant here recognizes that he has been entrusted with an enormous amount of wealth. Yes, it's less than the others, but that's not his focus. His focus is on the fact that, that his one talent is an enormous amount of wealth. None of which, by the way, did he earn or necessarily deserve. But it was given out according to each person's ability. So he may have actually realized, okay, I got one talent. But you know what? I'm okay with that because I'm kind of a one-talent guy. I don't need to be on the first line. I don't need to be sitting in the first chair of the choir. I'm just happy to be on the team. I'm just happy to have a role to play. There's more than enough for me to handle in this one talent. By the way, Johnny Five Talent over there, he's got his hands full. Because I got one, but he's got to have five talents. That's a lot of work, a lot of expectation. So once the talents are distributed, each servant sets out to decide how they're going to use what their master has entrusted to them. The first guy with five talents, he had a high ability. So perhaps he's the type of guy who, who follows the markets closely. He knows what the, what the crop prospects are going to be. He anticipates these opportunities. He invests wisely. And sure enough, in short order, he doubles his money. Five plus five, ten talents this guy now has. Second guy, somewhat similar, not quite as sharp, not quite as adventurous as the first guy, but, but I imagine he's one who is a hard, loyal worker. And so he uses his two talents to secure more land, and he, he drives his oxen hard, and he prunes his vineyard diligently, and from his long efforts and his, and his long labor, he has the ability to receive, again, a 100% return, two plus two, four talents this guy has. Now, the third servant, he's a bit of a different stripe here. He, he's not as adventurous. He doesn't like the risk as much, and so he chooses more of a cautious route. He instead decides to dig a hole, put his talent in it, bury it, and hide it in the ground. Which sounds very strange to us, but, but in fairness to this guy, that actually was a traditional way of saving money in the time of Jesus, that, that people actually would traditionally do this. They would store money in a hole in the ground. So he wasn't 
forging new territory here by doing that, by putting this in the ground. It just simply is not a very profitable way to put somebody's money to work for you. Now, after a long time, the master returns home, and he wants to settle accounts with his servants. Now, the man who had received five talents joyfully comes in before his master presenting five more. The guy who had received two talents comes in with excitement to bring yet two more talents. And to both of these men, to both of these guys who were entrusted with the master's wealth and business interests, he says to both of them in verse 21 and in verse 23, the master replies to them both, well done. Well done, good and faithful servants. You know, you are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come. Come and share in my master's happiness with me. Now, does anyone else find it odd that the master doesn't mention how much was gained by one versus the other? Like, like 10 bags of gold versus four bags of gold, you would just notice the difference in the size of the pile that's there. You don't have to be good at math or economics to know 10 bags of gold is more than four bags of gold. That two and a half million dollars is more than a million dollars. There's a big difference there. But the master doesn't extend any additional special treatment. There's no additional congratulations given to the ten-talent guy over the four. Now, in our world, in our economy, this, this is an odd, curious thing. But in God's economy, it's not. Because in God's economy, it's not about the value of the money. The master isn't congratulating them on how much money they had accumulated. Instead, he is acknowledging their faithfulness to him. And while one had brought in more, produced more than the other, the level of faithfulness shown by each was the same. See, the question is not how many talents have you earned, but what have you done with what was entrusted to you? The question was not, what treasures have you gained for me, but rather, what faithfulness have you shown to me? That was the measurement that was being used. The amount brought in differed greatly, but the level of faithfulness shown was the same, and that is the measurement we see. And to both of these servants, Jesus declares, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with what I gave you. I trusted you with it. You served me faithfully with it. So now I know I can trust you with even greater talents, with even greater opportunities. And even more rewarding than that, you get the satisfaction of sharing in your master's joy. Come, share in my joy. Now in contrast to this, in comes the third servant. The third servant with a bit of a different account. He comes in and he reveals a single talent. And he explains to his master, Master, I decided to hide it in the ground. I decided to save it for you. And here it is. Just as you gave it to me, ready to be used. You see, Master, I knew that you're a hard man. Master, I knew that you harvest where you have not sown. I know that you gathered where you have not scattered seed. So honestly, I was afraid. So I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. Now theologians are a little divided on what exactly this third servant is saying here. Some think he's walking in and, and suggests that he is just confidently, no excuses, declaring that this is the decision that he's made. Most, however, 
think that he is speaking from a place of fear. He's speaking from a place where he's apologizing and, and trying to justify his lack of action because today is the day of accounting for him. He states his belief that his master who he works for is harsh, is unloving. He's stating that he thinks his master expects nothing less than perfection, who seeks to enrich himself on the work of others and, and is profiting where he has no right to profit, is what he's saying in his words. Basically, he's saying to his master, I think you are a heartless slave driver who gets ahead on the backs of others. And because of this view of his master, he's afraid. He's afraid he might disappoint his master. And so rather than disappoint him, he thinks, I'll play it safe. And the axiom, better safe than sorry, is maybe the way to go here. But there's an inconsistency in the logic as he, as he tries to justify himself to his master. And, and his master calls him out on this and tells him exactly what he thinks of him. He says, beginning in verse 26 and 27, he says, you wicked you wicked and lazy servant. You say you, you knew me to be a hard man, that you've painted me as this profiteer, as a man who, who is only after the very best. If I was after the only, only after the very best, if that was the case, then why would you do less than the very least? Like at least you could have taken this money and invested it, and then I have at least a small return on interest when I return. But instead, you checked out. You stuck the talent in the ground. Like, like, why didn't you even try to do something with it? If you're not going to use it, I'm going to give it to somebody who will. And so he declares that this servant that he calls wicked be removed from his home, cast into the dark, cold streets. Then he orders that that single talent be given to the one who now has ten. And as Jesus concludes this parable in verse 29... He summarizes it with the main lesson. The main lesson is this. For everyone who has will be given, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So let me ask you a question. Did this third servant deserve such a strong rebuke? Like, did what he do, was it really that bad? Like, after all, let's, let's, let's give him a fair, a fair chance here. He was honest. He didn't steal the money. He didn't put it to work for his own selfish gain. He, he didn't squander it on wild living. And he didn't lie about it. He, he told the truth. And at the very beginning of the story, we're told that, that he has ability. Like, like, the master saw that he was worthy of a talent, $250,000. He was wor worthy to take that and had enough responsibility from past actions to show he was worthy of that. So really, what is his crime? Why is the master so incensed as to label him wicked? I think there's two things we can learn from this. The first one is this is that the servant had a poor view of the master. He thought very lowly of his master. And that kept him from wanting to advance the master's wealth, the, the master's capital, the master's business. You see, this negative misconception produced a bit of an alienation where he didn't feel a close relationship. There was this sense of distancing and not really truly knowing who the master was and what he was like. There's this bit of alienation. This sense of separation 
between their relationship with one another. And that resulted in mistrust. It resulted in fear. And that mistrust, that low opinion, that fear resulted in a lack of action. See, the result was that the talent was then given to another who would use it because it went unused. It never had the chance, even the chance to reach its potential. But secondly, he also lacked the imagination to see that every talent is precious. He also devalued the gift that he had received. See, regardless of the size and regardless of the amount, every talent is needed by the owner. Every talent is given for a reason. Jesus spoke about this in terms of even the small things of life can be used for incredible differences for the kingdom. Jesus talked about how a simple, overlooked cup of water, when given in love, can make a difference. How a piece of food, a meal, can solve hunger in a person's life for a moment. How a glass of water can quench thirst that completely overtakes a person's mind and body as they are thirsting for just a small drink of water. How your hospitality has the opportunity to cure loneliness. How a shirt can solve the problem of nakedness and shame. How an hour of time can actually bring a sense of healing to those who are sick. See, all such simple acts of kindness, but seen from a cosmic level have eternal significance when they're done with faithful, loving commitment to the master's business. This is not a matter of who earns the most. It's not a matter of who has the biggest gains. It's about who has been faithful with what they've been given. Who sought to use the talent that the master placed in their hands for the advancement of his kingdom and can then share in his joy when they see it being realized. Now, the English term for, for talent is, is derived from this parable. It's one of those words we use in our language that finds its origin in this parable, and it's commonly used today to refer to these natural endowments that, that people are kind of born with. These, if you're born with an ability, you have these, these innate capabilities, such as a person who has uh, the ability of intelligence is, is good at math. Or a person who is born with an innate strength has, has sort of a large physical uh, stature about them. Somebody who is born with a great sense of agility is good at sports. A creative person is good at, at, at writing and music, things like this. And, and we see this reflected in the psalmist's words in Psalm 139 where he says, I praise you, Lord, because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so it's appropriate to see talents in this light. Because that's from God, that he's, he's given those things to us and how he created us and knit us together. But to draw a little closer to the intent of this parable, the, the talents used here more specifically symbolize the giftedness that's bestowed upon each person, whether it be naturally or, or maybe perhaps in this case, these gifts that come from the Holy Spirit as a person gives their life to make Christ the center as he becomes their Lord and Savior. So regardless of what we're talking about here in terms of talents, innate abilities, things that are given to us by the Holy Spirit, they all find their origin in God. And if they find their origin in God, they're all to be used in the service of the kingdom of God. Paul reminded the church in Corinth of this as he was ministering to them and he knew that they had all sorts of different abilities and opportunities that had been given to them from God. 
and that each gift could be used in different ways, and there was different levels of giftedness among the church. He, he said this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, there are a variety of gifts among you, but there is the same spirit. There is a variety of service, but there's the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. He's reminding us as a, as a, as a group of people here that, that there is no such thing as a small gift. There's no such thing as a small calling or an insignificant talent that all of them have inherent value. So whether you are a five, two, or a one-talent person, Regardless of how much or how little he's placed in your hands, he has placed it in your hands and it's an opportunity to honor the master. It's an opportunity to make an investment in his kingdom. That talent, that gift, that ability, that opportunity has been given to you by God according to your ability and it represents work that he has for you to do while he's away. And this is the practical application I'm hoping we can pull from this parable today. This is what I want to leave you to think about and to process in your own life. And it begins with understanding this, is that we cannot allow comparison to lead to discontentment. We can't allow the act of comparison to lead to discontentment. You see, some people will appear to have been more gifted, more blessed, to, to have bigger results than we do. And you know what? Sometimes they do. That, that's just the reality of, of the world around us. Sometimes people do. And when we notice that, it can make us feel envious. Well, they, they got a bigger business than I do. Well, they, they got a larger church than we do. They, they've got a happier family than I do. Whatever that comparison thing may be. But then when we do that, and then we look back at what's in our hands, we go, well, it's, it's not as good. It's not as shiny. It's not as prestigious. And when we allow that act of comparison to lead to discontentment, there's two dangers. And the first one is that it prevents you from seeing the great value of the God-given talent that you do hold in your hands. I remember there's this pastor that had confided in me that in, in all of the years, he had many years of service and ministry, he had never once prayed with a person to receive Christ. And this was a sense of great shame for him. And it made him doubt his, his ministry. See, he felt like a failure because he was comparing himself to other people he had talked to and other people he knew. Maybe you've met some of these people where they, like I've shared airplane rides and, and cabs with people who you, you, you share a, a cab from the airport to the hotel. And by the time they get in the cab to arrive at the hotel, they've, they've shared the gospel and they've prayed with the cab driver by the time you get to the hotel. Like, like that, that's a gifting to be able to do that. And he was comparing himself against people who had this sort of ability. And he felt like over all the years of ministry, he had accomplished absolutely nothing. And that he was not gifted or called by God. It was a shame and doubt that started to well up in him because of the comparison. But, but I had seen him minister. I had seen him preach powerfully. And, and people came weekly, faithfully, just to hear him preach. Because, because it spoke to their hearts. I, I had seen this particular pastor counsel those at the most difficult and darkest moments of their lives and in their marriages, and he entered into those moments with them and brought hope and brought truth of Jesus to those moments. I had heard stories where he sat and held the hands of people who died without any family around, 
and offer comfort and prayers as they slip from this life to the next. I've seen him on his knees weeping for the marriages of his church. And he gave me a swift kick in the butt too to quit doing what I was doing and come be a pastor. He allowed comparison of others to himself to devalue the ministry that by other people's assessments was extremely powerful. But the measurement he should have used was faithfulness. Was he being faithful to the call that was placed upon his life? And I would suggest, yes, he was faithful. And that when he stands before God, he will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Even though he never prayed a specific type of prayer with somebody, his calling was different. And he now values that. I had to remind him, keep your eyes on your own plate. Keep your eyes on your own plate. I share with all of us today as well. Because every talent is valuable. Every talent is useful. Every talent has been given according to your ability. Which leads us to the second thing. Is that whatever God has placed in your hands, faithfully put it to use for him. What is that thing that God has placed in your hands? What is that talent he has given you? What, what passion, what ability, what opportunity has he placed in your hand? Maybe you have a great sense of joy and, 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 and desire to, to work with children or to work with youth. And then you think, oh, I'm, just, I'm not as exciting as those people. I, I, I'm, I don't know as much. I'm not as experienced. I, I'm not as mature of a believer as the other people who are currently doing it. And, and because you compare yourself to them, you, you just kind of check out and don't follow through. Listen, if God has called you to it, if he has placed that passion upon your heart, he has placed that in your hand, faithfully step up and give of that time and of that passion. We need you to do that. Has he placed in your hand in terms of your family and friends? Ah, you know, we're not as classy as the guys next door. We're not as godly as the people across the pew from us. When we compare ourselves to others, sometimes we can devalue the family God has called us to. But I gotta tell you, Facebook doesn't tell the whole story of a family, okay? People tend to post the good things on Facebook. When you meet them in the foyer, they tend to share the good things that are happening. That is not the sum total of what's going on in that person's life. But regardless, avoid the act of comparison leading to discontentment and instead faithfully obey and serve God with what he has given you, with the people in your life. Love them, care for them, honor them, honor God as you do. Be the example in those relationships for what you want to see. What does he place in your hands in terms of finances, material possessions? I hear people say sometimes, you know, we don't tithe because we haven't got a lot. Our gift would be too small. God doesn't need it compared to the size of the other gifts that some people give. The act of comparing ourselves to others may keep us from even honoring God through this. I gotta tell you, when Nadine and I started tithing, we started tithing with less than $20 a month. It was just, oh, we got 20 bucks in our pocket, we would just drop it in. But we started to faithfully do it. And God blessed us in so many ways. Not just financial ways, in other ways as well. As he blessed us as we were faithful to him with what he had given us, even in the small amounts. To the point where today we would give more in a month than we used to give an entire year. Because we've experienced the joy and the blessing that began with that small amount. It's not about the size it's about the faithfulness to obeying and serving God with what he has placed in your hand, regardless of his large or small. Faithfully trust him 
and allow him to do the rest with it? Who has he placed in your life that you could invite to come to the Alpha course? Those Alpha invitations is an opportunity placed in your hand. There are people in your life that God has intentionally allowed you to cross paths with because he wants you to be the one to be the example of the grace, truth, and love of Jesus in their lives. Who are those people's names that you could write on that prayer card? Who are those people where you have the opportunity to share the grace, truth, and love of Jesus with that you can be faithful to invite? Remember, you are not responsible for the response to the question. You are not responsible for the result of the invitation. You are simply responsible to be faithful to ask the question, to extend the invitation. Paul told his protege, Timothy, he said, godliness with contentment is great gain. That means that those who live in a way that honors God are satisfied with whatever they have. And then from that place of satisfaction, from that contentment of the talents placed in their hands, being used to faithfully serve God, they have the ability to recall the promise from verse 29 of this parable that says, to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. It makes sense, right? Like, like whether you're a parent, uh, a manager, a coach, God, you place more responsibility, more opportunity, more expectations upon the more trusted people within your sphere. Therefore, if you desire a larger role at work, on the team, at the class, be grateful for what you have and honor God with what has been given to you. If you long to have healthy relationships in your life, display the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ in all of your interactions and be faithful to those he's placed in your life and see what happens. If you feel like you long for a bigger ministry, for more people to, to minister to through your small group or through your church as a whole, care, serve, love the souls that God has entrusted to us and allow him to see it as a safe, healthy place to bring more. But here's the thing. And if he doesn't increase your lot, godliness and contentment is still your gain. Because even if he doesn't increase your lot, if you are faithful to serve him with what he has placed in your hand, you will still hear the words one day, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Come, share in my joy. As we close today, I want to invite you to consider the various talents that God may have given you, that he may have placed into your hands. Can you identify them? Don't overthink it. What are the natural abilities? What are the passions? What are the things in the past and the present that you have seen good results and have burned fruit in your life? What are the things that people have called out in you in the past? There's a good indication these are the types of things that, that are based upon the talents God has given you. And once you've named them, I want to invite you to ask a tough question. Are you being faithful to use them for his purposes? Are you being faithful to honor him with them? Or, if we're honest, have we devalued them? Have we buried our talent in the ground? And it's going unused. It's exciting to see that God cared enough to not just give these, <laughs> to, to not just trust us with them, but also to see that he, he sees fit to put them in our hands that we could use them that we could continue his work to, to show and tell the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. 
If you need help identifying those, if you need some assistance in, in using or developing whatever those talents may be, let us know. We are starting to come into this exciting ministry season, and there are a ton of opportunities where they can be put to work. And when they're put to use, not only will we share in the joy of seeing what God does with that faithful offering, but then I pray we'll also hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that, Lord, that you not only see the, the rough spots in our lives and the challenges and the doubts we have, but you also see the potential and the opportunity within each of us. So much so that according to our abilities, according to what you know we can handle with your help, you, you, you place opportunities, resources, talents into our hands, Lord. God, I pray that we would be able to identify what those are. That we'd be able to serve you faithfully, consistently, and powerfully according to your will, according to your plan that goes right along with that talent you've placed to us. That through our efforts, you would be glorified, you would be honored, and we would share in your joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.